to Exodus chapter 2 this morning with me. Exodus chapter 2. Exodus is a continuation of the story of Israel's history that we learned about in Genesis. Since coming to Egypt, the people of Israel have grown exponentially larger. They came with just 70 men. They'll leave 80 years from from what we're going to look at today, 80 years later with 600,000 men. So over a period of 430 years, they grow by over 10,000%. And as a result of their sheer numbers, they have become a serious threat to the people of Egypt, particularly to the leadership. And the new pharaoh, the king, is not favorable toward the people of Israel like the previous ones were. And the main reason was that they, there was another king who arose who did not know Joseph. And so because he feels threatened by the people of Israel, he responds in three ways that we looked at last week. First, he increases their workload. But that fails. That doesn't keep them from growing. That doesn't keep them from becoming a threat. In fact, they continue to grow in number and they continue to, to spread. And the second attempt was to kill every baby boy secretly, apparently, through the Hebrew midwives. But what the Pharaoh didn't know was that these Hebrew midwives valued the life, the life of these children over their own lives. And so that attempt failed. The third attempt for the Egyptian officers to protect themselves against the threat of Israel was to, kill, to have the Egyptian officers kill the baby boys themselves by throwing them in the Nile. From a human perspective, it looks like things for Israel are spiraling out of control. But we know that God is always at work behind the scenes to accomplish His purposes. God is always at work. And here, is, here He is working to preserve the people of Israel through His own appointed leader whose life needs to be preserved as well. Now, we'll get to the preservation of the people of Israel here in chapters 3 and following, but here in chapter 2, we have the preservation of this man himself, this man Moses. So let's read our passage together. I'll read. You follow along, beginning with verse 1. This is the Word of God. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket and covered it over with tar and pitch. Then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile with her maidens walking alongside the Nile. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid, and she brought it to her. And when she opened it, she saw the child. And behold, the boy was crying. And she had pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. The child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, and she named him Moses, and said, Because I drew him out of the water. Now it came about in those days when Moses had grown up that he went out to his brethren, 
He looked on their hard labors, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that, and when he saw there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. He went out the next day, and behold, two Hebrews were fighting with each other. And he said to the offender, Why are you striking your companion? But he said, Who made you a prince or a judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and said, Surely the matter has become known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the trough and filled the troughs to water their father's flocks. Then the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. When they came to rule their father, he said, Why have you come back so soon today? So they said, An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. And what is more, he even drew the water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Where is he then? Why is it that you have left the man behind? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses was willing to dwell with the man, and he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses. Then she gave birth to a son, and he named him Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died, and the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. In the bigger picture, God is at work behind the scenes to preserve His people so that they will worship Him. But in order for Him to preserve His people, He needs to preserve this Deliverer that He's going to establish. And so, we have basically three sections in this chapter. The first is God's preservation of Moses as a young boy. The second is God's preservation of Moses as a man. And then third, the God's preservation of the people of Israel. So let's first look at God's preservation of Moses as a young boy, verses 1 to 10. Now, in order to understand a little bit of the context, look back to chapter 1 and verse 22. And notice the command that the king had given to his people. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, all the Egyptians, apparently the officers who were in charge, saying, Every son... Every Hebrew son who is born, you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. So they had a responsibility in order to protect Egypt from this greater threat of Israel overtaking Egypt just by sheer number. They tried to protect themselves by having every baby boy killed. What a horrific sight this must have been. I imagine that the parents of these boys that were being killed begged the Egyptians not to. I, I imagine that the family would follow the Egyptians to the bank of the river to somehow try to preserve their babies from dying. I wonder if parents were less likely to have children during that time just because there is a 50% chance that their child would be killed. If it was born a boy, he would be killed. There's a lot we could say about this terrible edict. But the main thing that we need to keep in mind 
is that they were commanded to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. And they were ultimately to put their confidence in God. And since for the most part the life of their baby was out of their hand, they couldn't determine the gender of their baby. Their responsibility in this case was to obey God and leave the rest up to God. God will determine what happens to their baby. If it's a boy, if he'll be preserved or not. And so this is kind of uh, what the, the Hebrews, the, the, the Jews are having to think through as they're, uh, as they're reproducing. Well, the background of this protection of Moses is found in verse 1. There's a man from the house of Levi and a woman from the house of Levi. So we have these two Levites who get married and God is at work in more than just this little family. God is at work more than just in this man Moses. God is at work in the people of Israel as a whole to protect them from the oppression of Egypt and to deliver them from this land and deliver them to this promised land that God had had told them about. But in order to do that, He had to use this man Moses. So before Israel could be delivered, Moses had to be delivered. And this story begins in verse 1 with the marriage of these Levite parents. Their names are Amram and Jochebed, we learn from other parts of Scripture. And, and uh, these two get married and they, around 1525, give birth to the man Moses. The way that he's protected is, first of all, through his mother's stealthy actions. His mother's stealthy actions. Moses was born to these two Levite parents. And we know that he had at least two siblings. Aaron was three years older than him. And Miriam was probably a young lady. Perhaps Moses was born in secret. Perhaps uh, Jochebed delivered him out in the wilderness so that the Egyptian officials would not know what took place. Maybe she gave birth to him in her own tent but tried to keep it quiet. Whatever the case, as soon as he was born she began hiding him. And she was able to do this for three months. Now, there are a lot of factors that we should consider in Moses' mother's stealthy actions. First, the Egyptians had a responsibility to kill these baby boys. And that means that Pharaoh would have had to uh, appoint some officers whose primary or maybe sole job was to patrol the camp of Israel and search and destroy for baby boys. How they did this, we don't know. The text doesn't say. They could have just kind of had little posts in various areas of Goshen where Israel was staying. And maybe they just listened for the sound of a mother giving birth. And then they would go, and at the delivery they would swipe, they would check the gender of the baby, and if it was a boy, they would swipe him and throw him in the Nile. More likely, they probably did regular checks in the tents of the people of Israel. The Israelite women would have wanted to hide these children and would have wanted to keep them from the Egyptians. So they would have, I would think they would have to do regular checks in order to determine the gender of these babies and see if they needed to be killed. And this seems to make sense because the men would probably be off at work doing this labor that they're required to do. And perhaps the Egyptians would call for the women and children, everyone, to come out of the tent and allow them to go into the tent to search to make sure that there are no baby boys being hidden. So that's the first factor we need to consider in this. The second is that babies 
grow significantly in the early weeks of their lives, and because of that, they require a lot of what? Food, yes. What else? Sleep, right? Lots of sleep. And so it would be easier to hide, and you mothers know this, it's easier to hide a one-month-old than it would be to hide a six-month-old baby, right? They're just more restless. They're awake more often. When, they, when they're first born, they seem to sleep all day to wake them up to eat. The third factor we need to consider is that Moses had to be a fairly good baby. Right? If he was being hidden for three months, he had to be a pretty good baby. If you've ever been in a public place where it's supposed to be quiet, maybe on an airplane or something, and had an infant with you or someone else had an infant with you, you know how difficult it is to keep an infant quiet. Especially if he's a colicky baby, and I would suggest to you that Moses was not, that he was actually a very good baby and one who could could very well be hidden well, after three months of passing all these apparent inspections, Jacobad knew that th- there was no way that she could hide him any longer. It was going to become clear at some point to the Egyptians that she had been hiding this boy because his identity would become known. And so she changed to plan B. And we read about that in verse 3. When she could hide him no longer after the three months, she got him a wicker basket and covered it over with tar and pitch. Now, this plan B is not just a last minute, oh boy, here they come, he's making noise, I better hurry up and and hide him. I think this is something that Jochebed and Amram planned for perhaps many weeks and perhaps many months. And the reason I say that is because it would take some time to create this this, uh, basket, as the text calls it, this wicker basket. Now, literally, this wicker basket should be translated as Ark of Bulrushes or Ark of Papyrus. Papyrus was a, a plant that, that is a long leafy plant that grows in marshy areas. The root would be underwater, very easy to pick, pick up out of the water, but it would be, have these really tall stalks and they would take these plants and then they would take the insides of them, the, the stalk of the plant, they would cut it and then they would roll it out they'd roll out the, the stalk of the plant and lay them in strips about half inch by one foot long. And the plant had some natural gummy substance in it that would allow it to glue itself back to, to the other pieces of papyrus. And this is where the papyrus paper came from. The pa- we get the word paper from papyrus. It was basically these plants that were strips laid one right after another and then they were, they were also sent uh, vertically as well and then as they dry, they, they just glue themselves to each other. There would be no other materials that were needed. And uh, they would usually uh, place these in one-foot tall sections and make them into scrolls of about 100 feet. And uh, so that would be a, a very helpful material. In fact, it would become the, it would become the, uh, the writing in, uh, material of choice for the next several thousand years until... Um, until parchment came along. And so this plant was used for making paper, but that's not the only purpose of this plant. Jacobed figured out, or Amram, or both determined that this could also be used for an ark of protection, a basket of protection. And so they made this into a little basket, and um, she makes the, the papyrus, or has it made for her, out of the papyrus, and then covers it with tar so that it would float, and then she puts it back among the papyrus plants. 
And this makes sense because it would be very well hidden there. When you would look out onto the river, you would see a little uh, marshy area with the papyrus plant sticking up and, and you wouldn't be able to see the basket among the papyrus plants and so the reeds. And so she would go over there and spend time uh, feeding the baby and then putting him back in there and just leaving him. Uh, and she was apparently uh, planning to do this for as long as she could. But Moses needs more protection than just from his parents. And so that's where his sister comes into the picture in verses 4 through 9. After his mother put him into the Nile River in this ark of protection, verse 4, his sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. Now Miriam was probably 10 to 12 years old at this point, and she watched from a distance to see what would happen to her little brother. She wanted to see what would, what, what would happen, and, and maybe if he made some noise, how she could calm him. Well, Pharaoh's daughter comes to bathe in the river and she hears some crying, but perhaps can't see where it's coming from. She looks over at the reeds and doesn't see anything until she comes closer and finds out that there is one of the Hebrew boys hidden in the Ark of Papyrus. And Miriam's watching this whole time and she notices that Pharaoh's daughter takes a liking to Moses, that, that she had compassion on him. Notice verse 6, when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the boy was crying, and she had pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. When Miriam recognized that Pharaoh's daughter was not opposed to this, she came over to Pharaoh's daughter. Now, this would have been a bold move for her to come up to Pharaoh's daughter and, and uh, see if she could help in, in any way. Jacobet is probably expecting that she'll have to hide this boy until he's old enough to blend in with the other boys that are a few years older. But, but this Ark of Papyrus turned out even better than expected. Not only is Moses spared, but, but now she's going to play an important role in Moses' growth, probably for the next three to four years. Notice verse eight or verse 7, Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? Miriam says, "Do you want me to go get my mom? I mean, excuse me. Do you want me to go get just? I'll just choose one of the Hebrew women that that is able to nurse, and and I'll have her come, and maybe she can help you out." I mean, Miriam knew exactly what was going on, and she and she allowed for her mother to be able to be a part of this. And it's amazing that Pharaoh's daughter consents, says, "Go ahead, get her." And then not only that, notice what she does for her. Um. Verse 9, Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away, saying to Jochebed, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. I mean, this is amazing. Not only is Moses spared, but now his mother is being paid to nurse him. And this is going to go on uh, probably for three or four years. After that point, Pharaoh's daughter uh, became her own son. Verse 10, the child grew and she brought him, that is, Jochebed brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and she became, or he, Moses, became her son and she named him Moses, said, because I drew him out of the water. Now, this is going to become important as we start to see Moses' role in delivering Israel from Egypt. It's important for him to be an educated man, that he understands the customs of Egypt, that he understands what goes on within the house of Pharaoh that he has some sort of, sort of credibility among these people. He knows how to talk to the king because the king essentially is his father. Moses is raised as an Egyptian. 
And so he was raised in excellence. And yet, he ends up fleeing from Egypt. And, um, and he, is so, he is so enculturated as an Egyptian that when other people see him, they think he's an Egyptian. Look at verse 19. Remember these seven daughters who are trying to water their flocks? They said to their father, An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherd. So when they just look at Moses, hear him talk, they just think that he's an Egyptian, even though he's a Hebrew. So, so Moses grows up basically as, a, as an Egyptian, even though he's not an ethnic one. It's not clear whether Pharaoh knew the origin of Moses. It's not clear if, if he knew that he was actually a Hebrew boy that was spared by his daughter. But, but likely he did. He probably just turned a blind eye to it because he loved his daughter. But apparently, he knew that Moses was an Egyptian. And that's going to become clear because of the next episode. And here's the second sort of preservation that God does in verses 11-22. through 22. God's preservation of Moses as a young man. God's preservation of Moses as a young man. Moses, in verses 11-12, through 12, comes to a place where he wants to now go see for himself what's going on among the people of Israel because apparently he knew his own origin. He knew that he was a Hebrew by birth. And now he wanted to see it for himself. He had heard that they have been oppressed. And he is growing up in this life of luxury in the Egyptian household. And he didn't know what was really going on. So he wanted to see it for himself in verses 11 and 12. And so at the age of 40, Moses uh, goes to, to witness the oppression of Israel. And one of the first things that he sees when he makes his trip to Goshen is that an Egyptian is beating a Hebrew. Look at the verse, end of verse 11. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he considers himself a Hebrew. He knows he's a Hebrew. In fact, Hebrews 11 tells us that he did not uh, call himself the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He was not willing to do that. So apparently, you know, when he looked back on his life, he said, I'm not willing to call myself a part of Pharaoh's household. I'm a Hebrew. And, um, and as he sees this oppression that's going on, this Egyptian beating a Hebrew, apparently in private, he determines to take the law into his own hands, so to speak. Look at verse uh, 12. So he looked this way and that, and when he saw there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. There's a lot of discussion among scholars about the ethics of Moses' killing, whether it was premeditated murder or whether it was just an act of, of justice. But I think the text wants us to see that it was a premeditated murder. Look at verse 12. So he looked this way and that, and when he saw there was no one around, he knew exactly what he was doing. Now, very well could be that he was just trying to beat the man, the, the Egyptian, but not to death, and, and in the process he actually died. But I think that he actually knew what he was doing. He's looking this way and that to see if anybody else is around. And when he sees that nobody else is around, he goes and attacks the Egyptian. We don't want to defend the actions of Moses, but we should recognize here, I think, a larger point, And that is, where does Moses' loyalty lie? Is it with the Egyptian people or with the Hebrews? Right? It's with the Hebrews. It's not with the Egyptians. And that's why he says, I'm, I refuse to call myself the son of Pharaoh's daughter in Hebrews 11.24. Moses' loyalty lies with his own people. The next day, 
He comes upon two Hebrews that are fighting in verses 13 and 14. And the Hebrews are, what, are you going to kill us too? Are you going to kill us like you killed the Egyptian? Why, why weren't they happy that Moses killed the Egyptian? Why weren't they happy that Moses protected them? Well, think about it from their perspective. What do you suppose the Egyptians would do when they discovered that one of their officers was missing? They would start to form a search party, right? And who would have the motive and opportunity to kill an Egyptian guard? Would it not be them? The, 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 Egypt, the Hebrews who were the slaves. The Hebrew slaves. And so all the fingers are going to point back to them. They don't know Moses is around. They don't know Moses would do something like this. And so they launch a full investigation. And at the center of the investigation is the Hebrew people. So for them, Moses, you're not doing us any favors. You're making it worse on us. When they find one missing, they're going to make it worse on us. They might kill some of us. You're causing us trouble. So what, are you going to kill us too? Notice how Moses responds in verse 14. Um, We'll read the whole verse. But he said, Who made you a prince or a judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and said, Surely the matter has become known. Moses was trying to kill this Egyptian in secret, but he now recognizes that it has become known. It has become known among the people of, of, of Israel, and he recognizes that it will become known among the Egyptians. And that's in fact what happens in verse 15. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses. See, we know where Moses' loyalty lies. It lies with the Hebrew people, and now Pharaoh knows where Moses' loyalty lies. So Moses feels he has no other choice but to flee. And so he flees for Midian, which is on the east coast of the Red Sea and the Arabian Peninsula. So they're over here in in Goshen, which is in the southern region of Egypt. And he heads over the Red Sea, over to the eastern part of uh, of the Red Sea, to the Arabian Peninsula where Midian is. Now, the Midianites were a constant threat to Israel but they actually originated from the same person that Moses did, and that was Abraham. They were not part of Israel. They were from one of Abraham's other wives. But, but they did originate from Abraham. And so pro- Moses finally uh, probably found some, some camaraderie, some, some refuge with them. And when he gets there to Midian, he sits down by a well because he's a man without a team. The Egyptians are not on his side, and the Hebrews are not on his side. So Moses sits down there all alone. Verses 16 through 22, we we learn about how he begins a family for himself. As he's sitting by the well, seven sisters come to draw water, but they're forced out by these bullying shepherds. Apparently what would happen is there's just some public troughs that were used that were just right there by the well. You would... Go down, draw the water, pour and fill up the troughs, and then all of your flocks would come to drink from the troughs. Some shepherds come along and they notice that these women have already filled the troughs. And so they drive their sheep and flock away and allow their flock to come in and and drink. And Moses notices the injustice that's taking place. We learn something about Moses, something about his character that Moses is opposed to oppression, isn't he? He he desires justice to be done. 
He is willing to stand up against oppressors. And this is what his adult life is going to be about. God is, in a small way, I think, preparing Moses for what he will have to do for Israel. So Moses drives these shepherds away and their flocks, and he refills the troughs and allows the shepherdesses to come and and their animals to drink. And so they go back and tell their father. Notice uh, verse 20, uh, verse 19. They said, An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds, and what is more, he even drew the water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, Where is he then? Why have you left him behind? Invite him to have something to eat. We learn his name in verse 18. His name is Rule. He is, verse 16, the priest of Midian, and he has seven daughters. Now we're going to find out later that his name is is also called Jethro. And apparently he's just an unbeliever. seems like uh, Moses brings him to saving faith at some point later when Moses is on the mountain at Sinai. Jethro invites Moses to stay with them. And because he sees Moses as such an upstanding character, he, he, he gives Zipporah his daughter, to him in marriage in verse 21. They get married and they have a child, verse 22, and we learn something more about Moses. She gave birth to a son and he named him Gershom, for he said, why is his name Gershom? I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And this is true more than just the fact that he's in Midian, but, but his whole life has been one of being a sojourner in a foreign land. He's, in, he's growing up in Egypt when he ought to be in Canaan. From the age of 40 through the age of 80, Moses would live in this area. He would live in Midian. And during this time, he would learn to lead the flocks of Israel. That's, what, that's what's going on here in, in Midian. He becomes a tender of, of, uh, of Jethro's flocks. And so he would learn how to shepherd animals, which is, which is I think, again, God preparing him to shepherd the flock of Israel. He's going to have to shepherd two million people at some point. God often prepares us in these ways for bigger purposes. He starts out teaching us in small things. Things that we may seem are just insignificant. We, we may look at it and think they're insignificant. But God is using it to cause us to be faithful in little things so that He can make us in charge of much. God was working to preserve the life of Moses. But not as an end in itself. Not just so that Moses could be preserved, but for this purpose, verses 23-25, through it is to preserve the people of Israel. And that's what this whole book is about. It's about God's preservation of the people of Israel so that they will worship Him. So he, pre- he prepares and preserves Moses so that Moses can preserve and prepare the people of Israel. And we see this in verses 23-25. through Moses, remember, left Egypt at the age of 40. And now 40 years have passed, and the king of Egypt has died. Verse 23, Now it came about in the course of those many days, and that's speaking of the 40 years that he was in Midian, that the king of Egypt died, and the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of their bondage rose to God. Israel had been oppressed for decades now. And the oppression from Egypt had not lessened. And so what do they do? We see four times their cry for help. 
And the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage. They cried out. Their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So we have, and then verse 24, they're groaning. So we have this crying out that happens from the people of Israel. And God doesn't leave this unnoticed, does He? Look at verse 23. And their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. God heard their groaning. God remembered His covenant. Verse 25, God saw the sons of Israel. And God took notice of Him. So when God's people cry to Him, when God's people groan because of their circumstances, God listens and God responds. The motivation for God's response is found at the end of verse 24. And God remembered His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Here's the motivation for God, why God responds to Israel because God remembered his covenant. Abraham knew that his descendants would be strangers in a foreign land for 400 years, according to Genesis 15:13. They would be strangers in a foreign land. And Jacob also knew that God would eventually lead Israel out of Egypt. Remember when Jacob was in in Israel, he didn't want to send Benjamin, he didn't want to go himself to Egypt, even though they're saying this guy is telling us Benjamin has to come. And even when they come back and say, come on, Jacob, it's time to go. Jacob spends some time talking to God and saying, God, I don't know if I should go. And God says, listen, Jacob, you're going to go there. You're going to die there. But your people are coming back. I will give your descendants the land of Israel, the land of Canaan, so you can go. And this is the basis for which God responds to His people now when they cry. He, he hears their cry and He remembers their covenant. Now when we read that God remembers in Scripture or that God forgets, it's not the same thing that we generally mean when we say the same thing. That we remember or we forget. It's not, it's not that God has to recall something to His mind as if something left His mind. But when God remembers, it means that He moves to action. When he forgets, it means that he doesn't act according to what he knows. So, for example, when God put the rainbow in the sky, it wasn't for us to remember. It wasn't for that purpose. He says, I put it in the sky for my remembrance so that I would remember my covenant with Noah and that I would never destroy the people on the earth. So, when God remembers the rainbow, he moves to action. In this case, inaction, not destroying the earth by water. Or when the text of Scripture says that God remembers our sins no more. Is it that God has forgotten our sins and He didn't remember what we had done? No, it's not that He he can't recall what we've done. It's that He chooses not to act according to what He knows. That's what it means when God forgets. When we read that God forgets. When God remembers, it means that He calls to mind or He... he um, He acts according to what he already knows about his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now he has decided to act based on the promise that he made. So all of this oppression, and now this groaning, and God's desire now to move to action according to what he knows, the remembrance, leads to the deliverance of Israel. So let me leave you with two minor points and one major point. All right. When I say minor, I don't mean unimportant. I mean subpoint. I mean the passage doesn't make it the main point of of the text. Okay. So so when you think minor and major here, I'm talking about subpoint and major point. So 
Minor point number one. God loves to act when we call to Him. God loves to act when we call to Him. When God's people call to Him, He wants to come and act. As we studied through the book of Judges, God time and again desired to act, but He would often wait. He would often wait until His people would call on Him, and sometimes they wouldn't call on Him. And so He would allow them to fall into greater oppression so that they would feel the pain and need God effectively and then call on Him. And when he when they called, it was like He's ready to act right now. And my encouragement to you this morning is that you should call on God for help because He wants to come to your aid. He sees you. He sees your trouble. He wants to come near to you and show Himself strong, even if it means allowing you to walk through a trial so that He can show you His grace more. God loves to come to His people in order to deliver them through the trial or deliver them from the trial. But sometimes, other times I should say, God also wants to come to us even when it's not a trial involved. You know, we tend to call to God regularly when a trial's there. Like, this is really starting to bother me and become difficult for me. And God, can you remove it from me? But, but God also wants to respond to us when we don't, we're not going through a, a trial. For example, I, I personally have become increasingly concerned about my heart and my lack of passion for God to be glorified through the salvation of the lost, through my desire to evangelize. Could it be that God is not bringing people to Christ through me because He is waiting for me to ask? Could it be that God's waiting for me to ask with faith in what He can do? Could it be that God is waiting for me to ask with perseverance? Like not just the first time, I prayed for this person, you never responded, so I'm done praying for him. Could it be that God's waiting for me to depend on Him fully for the salvation of this lost? You see... This is not a trial per se, but God still loves to come and respond to His people when they call to Him. And God is ready to draw people to Himself, but He's waiting for us often, I think, to come and ask and for us to go and tell. God loves to act when we call to Him. They groaned, they cried, and their cry reached God and He remembered His covenant to them. Minor point number two. God alone is our hope. God alone is our hope. We could look at the story of Israel, particularly from being delivered from Egypt, and say, well, their deliverer was Moses. Or their deliverer was Miriam, because Miriam was the one who delivered Moses. Or, or uh, you know, Moses' mother or Pharaoh's daughter. They, these were the deliverers of Moses, and they eventually helped deliver Israel. But what we ought to recognize is that God was behind it all. God was behind the deliverance of Moses as a young baby, put into the heart of his mother to to save him and his sister and Pharaoh's daughter and even Moses' own mind when he fled from Pharaoh. If Israel's hope was in itself to overthrow the power of Egypt, or at least to get out from under Egypt, it would fail. Israel needed to put its confidence in God. And our suffering in this life does not go unnoticed by God either. 
He is the one to whom we can turn. And He is the one to whom we must turn. And when we are struggling, we need to turn to God because He alone is our hope. We can look to all sorts of other people and programs and ideas and philosophies, but all of those will fail apart from God. God alone is our hope. Okay, so those are the sub-points of the passage. Those are not what the text intends to, to, for us to go away with. Here's the major point. And it is this. God works in our lives in much bigger ways than we see. God works in our lives in much bigger ways than we see. We may look at our lives and think that the purposes that we can tangibly see are all that's at stake. That's the only thing that God's doing. For example, you may work hard at your job and the tangible purpose in all of that is for you to be able to provide for your family because when you work hard, you get a paycheck and when you get a paycheck, you can provide for your family. So that's what we see. That's the, that's the, uh, the, the immediate purpose of this. But students of the Bible know that God is doing something much bigger than just providing you with food on the table or money in your pocket. God uses your job for lots of other purposes, doesn't He? He uses your job to help improve your character. He, helps, he, he uses your job so that you will have opportunity to deal with other people that are unlike you, so that it helps expose your sin. helps you to see where you need to, to become more like Christ. He uses your job to, to, to testify to unbelievers that are watching of the great worth of God. Just in your work ethic, God is able to magnify His own name to people who are watching. He's also using your job to remind other believers of the value of working hard. That, that, that we ought to work. That's a good thing to work. God made work to be good. So, see, see, there's hundreds and thousands of other intangible purposes for everything we do. For our work, God's doing something much bigger than just providing food for us or money in our pocket, isn't He? Some of those purposes we'll see in this lifetime, and some we will not. But we know that God is using it for His greater purposes. Let me try to explain by using a different illustration. Suppose you're diagnosed with stage 3 cancer, and your primary goal is to get the cancer out of your body. But God might be doing something bigger than providing you with the health that you want. God might be causing the cancer to spread so that He can magnify His worth to the people who are watching you deal with that cancer. Why is it that God spared Peter and John even though they were imprisoned but allowed James to be killed? Why is it that my mom died of cancer and my sister-in-law went into remission with hers? Why is it that God spared Moses but allowed his neighbor, you know, some other Hebrew, to be killed? The truth is, we don't really know. And that compels us to do the only thing that we can do in all the circumstances of life, and that is to trust God that He knows what is best. Because we don't have all the answers. We have to trust that God is good and that God is our Deliverer and that He's powerful to deliver, and that He is wisdom. And that even in His wisdom, and His power, and His goodness, He may choose not 
to deliver us in the way we want. And that's okay. Because God's purposes are what is most what are most important. That's why James could be in prison and then be killed. While Peter and John are released because God has different purposes. Was James less spiritual than Peter and John? No, the text doesn't indicate that at all. It's just God had different purposes for them. One in His death and the others in their life and eventual death. And through it all, no matter what kind of circumstances come into our lives, we gladly obey God. And we gladly give ourselves to Him completely, even though we don't see the bigger picture. Even though we don't have all the answers, we can't put all the pieces of the puzzle together, we know that God sees it, and God knows, and God is doing what is best. God is working in our lives in a way that is much bigger than what we see. And our responsibility, just like Israel, is to trust God that He knows what is best. Let's pray. Father, help us to see more clearly how You are working in our lives. And Lord, that doesn't mean that You will give us all the answer. We certainly would love for You to do that. Tell us why. Make it clear to us why You do allow certain things to happen in our lives. But we recognize that we can't know all those things because our ways are not like Your ways. That Just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so Your ways are higher than ours. And so we trust in You to do to know and to do what is best in our lives. And Lord, if that means pain and suffering and difficulty and struggle for the sake of other people being able to grow in their relationship with You, to be able to see how valuable You are to us, to be able to see what we're willing to give up in order to serve You, then so be it, Father. Lord, we, we certainly don't want to wish trials on anyone, but, but we do recognize that that You accomplish great things even through them. And Lord, as we see You deliver us in the way that you that we want You to deliver us, may we praise You. And Lord, even as we see You, allow us to continue in the trials that we face, which is opposite the way that we want to be delivered. May we still praise You. Because You have given and You take away and, and blessed be Your name. As Job said when his trials came like a whirlwind. Lord, help us to encourage one another in this way. Strength, I pray that You would strengthen our faith in the difficulties that we face. May we look to You for strength through it all. And even when we don't understand, that we trust You. pray in Jesus' name.